1 Corinthians 15, page 1156. And today, we are going to do some eschatology. If you don't know what, it, if you don't know what that is, don't worry, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> Sorry, that's such a terrible joke. For those who are confused, eschatology is about the end of the world. Uh, that was the joke. It's not my joke. That was Nick from someone else. We're going to be talking about the future. We're going to be talking about what is going to happen in the future. This is a big subject, and I think this is properly exciting um, as we read what God says in his word. And we're going to think together um, about it. But we're going to read first, because that's what we need to do. We need to read what God's word says, and then we'll try and understand it together. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. We're going to start from here. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? It's a great question. (laughs) If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, here is the the key question I want us to think about um, this afternoon. It's a question that my guess is most of us will have asked at some point in our lives as a child. It's on the screen, I think. It is the question, are we there yet? So it's a common question, isn't it? And the answer to the question, are we there yet? When I get asked that, what is always the answer? No. That's why we're still driving. (laughs) If we were there, we would have stopped. And normally when we do get to there, so here we are, I'm here, we're not there yet. When we get there, I will say something like, we've arrived or get out. So let's just work on the basis that we're not there yet until we get to there. (laughs) 
you know how it goes. Of course, the destination really matters. And the question we're going to think about this afternoon is, well, are we there yet? As Christians, are we there? Have we arrived at our final destination yet? Because if you'd asked this church in Corinth, they would have said, yes. Yes, we're there. We've arrived. Keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 15. Come back to 1 Corinthians 4. Let me just show you this. It will help us to understand why 1 Corinthians 15 is so important. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. Look what Paul says. He's picking up on, uh, talking to this, this church. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we may reign with you. So he's saying to them, you think that you're already there. You think that you already have everything you need. You think you're already reigning. You think that you have everything that the Christian life is supposed to have. And Paul writes to say, we're not there yet. There is so, so much more. And if you think being a Christian is all about now, if you think being a Christian is for just this time now, then you're going to get into a complete mess. Imagine I'm driving along, we get to services, we pull into services, we get out. And suddenly my kids start unloading the boot and getting everything out and putting up the tent and getting out the sun lounges and lying down by the M4. Saying, so this is beautiful. We're here. And I say to them, no, no, there's so much more. They go, no, 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 we just, this is it. This is all we want. This is perfect. We love it. It's so beautiful. You say, no, come back to your senses. Wake up. You're nowhere near there yet. The service station, I know it feels nice. (laughs) I know it's good. I know that getting out of the car is nice. But we're not there yet. And that's the problem with this church. Because they think they're there, because they're in the services going, well, this is fine, we like it here. What they care about is being impressive now. We've seen all this, right? This is just the same old, same old. They care about being impressive now, looking good. We don't want to look foolish now. Because this is it. This is our destination. And it's about pleasure now. We don't want to miss out. We want to be able to exert our freedom. We want to be able to enjoy whatever we want. We want to be able to indulge in sexual pleasure, whatever we want, because it's now. But they've got it all wrong. Because Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 to say, no, we're not there yet. And that's why he says in the last verse of our reading, verse 34, come back to your senses. Come on, you stupid church. Wake up, not you. Maybe. (laughs) Corinth. Paul writes, come back. You're out of your mind. Come back to your senses and understand. The things that you so desperately crave now are nothing compared to what God has in store for you. So my job this afternoon is to try and whet your appetite for then. To try and show you that this is nothing compared to that. To show you what God has in store 
for the future. And we are talking, let's be crystal clear, about the end. That's our subject, the end. You see that in uh, verse 24? Then the end will come. Now we've got to be careful with the word the end, because it's quite a final word, isn't it, in every sense. And and sometimes the end has a negative connotation, like, you know, you're eating Haagen-Dazs, and it's like, it's the end. This is not good. I I didn't want the end. I was enjoying the now. No, when we talk about the end, actually the the Greek word is, is a word that means the goal, the purpose, what everything is building to, the climax. It's not the kind of, oh, it's finished. It's the, wow, we've arrived. The holiday at the end of the car journey. We're talking about the end. You need to know what God has in store for you so that you can live rightly now. It is history's destination. What everything has been building towards. So this is big stuff. History is not going round and round and round in circles until boom, everything blows up and that's the end of that. History has a purpose. It has an end. It has a goal. It has a finish. It has a climax. So what we're going to do is um, I'm going to show you five aspects of the end. Um, So we'll we'll have an end. So five things about the end. Five events that need to happen. You'll notice in this passage there's lots of language of then, after this, then, after this, that kind of language. There's a sequence of stuff. And we're going to show you these five things. The first of the five has already happened. Okay, so the first event of the end has already happened. And the other four guarantee, uh, that, that one guarantees the other four. So here we go. Ready? Five, five things about the end. The one that's already happened is Christ raised. Christ raised. Christ has been raised. Do you see that in verse 20? It's categorical, absolutely clear. Verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised. Now because that has happened, and Paul has already argued, you've seen this in the last couple of weeks, if you're not sure about this, go back, listen to the sermons. Because Paul is saying this is a fact of history, that Christ was raised. It has happened. People saw him crucified and then alive again. That resurrection has set off a chain reaction that makes the other four events absolutely inevitable. So we used to have, um, you you know, like, when I was a kid, fireworks, you had a firework, you lit it, and it went bang. Right, that was it. Now you get those fireworks that are like massive great boxes that say you've got to be 25 metres away. My garden wasn't 25 metres long when I had a garden. But anyway, you, you buy this box and you light one bit of it and it just sets off. All of them go. You light the fuse and the whole thing goes. When Christ rose from the dead, when Jesus smashed out of the grave, it wasn't just a happy ending, right? It wasn't like, oh, that's nice, Jesus is alive again. <laughs> it's not like the cross is the important bit. You know, that's the bit where Jesus saved us and he died for our sin and that's, that's lovely. Oh, it's nice, he rose again. No, the resurrection of Jesus sets in motion the end of the world. 
It sets in motion a sequence of five events by which the world ends and history reaches its climax. So the first event in the end of the world, the first eschatological event, I'm going to keep saying that because then you'll... It doesn't really matter if you know it or not. The first event has already happened. Christ has been raised. So everything that I'm about to say is not built on fanciful ideas, kind of nice dreams. Everything I'm about to say rests on this historical fact. So if you can prove to me that Christ didn't rise, you can forget everything else. But if he rose, then all of the rest follow. So Christ rose. It is critical that Christ was raised. We're going to jump down now to uh, the second big event, and that's in verse um, 23. But each in his turn, so, so Paul has said that Christ has risen. He's talked about Adam, everyone born in Adam. That means everyone born uh, in sin will die. But because of Christ now, there is life possible. Christ is raised. Here's the second big event. Christ returns. So have a look at verse 3. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So the next great event in human history, the next great event in the end, is when Christ returns. Jesus is coming back. He came once and he came quietly. He came as a baby laid in a manger, surrounded by animals where shepherds came and wise men came to worship. He came once as a baby. He came once quietly. Not many people saw it. It was fairly quiet. He came to save. He came to die on a cross to pay for our sins so that we might have life. He died on a cross. He rose again. He returned to heaven. But he's made a promise that he will come back. And when he comes again, it will not be quietly. It will not be missed. It will not be in a cattle shed. It will be in the clouds. It will be magnificent. It will be powerful. It will be glorious and everyone will see it. He is coming again with a trumpet sound. It's one of the great narratives that's woven into our very souls. The return of a hero. The anticipation of someone who will come and save. And that's Jesus. Now I want to push you on this, okay? I want to push us to think, I guess if we've been around church, we'll know that we're supposed to believe that Christ will return, that Christ is coming. But are you sure of that? Can I help you to be more sure? Let me try and help you to be a little bit more sure. One of the things I've been very struck by uh, this week as I've prepared this, this sermon is that the return of Christ rests on the resurrection and his stated promise that he will come. Right, listen. Jesus looked into the eyes of his disciples, right, the guys that he loved, guys that he'd spent his time with, guys that he'd wept with, guys that he'd poured himself out for. He looked into their eyes and he said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. Do you not see it? This is not some abstract doctrine. Oh yes, one day Jesus will return. Jesus has personally promised. He looked into their eyes and he promised them he would return. You think Jesus is going to break his promise? You think Jesus is going to leave his precious people on their own? And you might say that was just the 12. No, no, no. This is the promise that he's made to his whole church. Listen to this. Don't worry about turning to it. But in Revelation 3, uh, Jesus, um, Jesus writes to a church and he says to them, wait one second. Here it is. Uh, Jesus says to them, I am coming soon. I'm coming. To his church which is struggling, a church which is under pressure, a church which is being crushed, a church which is under massive pressure to give up. And he looks at them and he says, my precious children, I'm coming. And he makes that promise to you. It's a personal promise from Jesus, the one who died on a cross, the one who rose again. And he says, I am coming for you. And when he comes, that is the next great event, when Jesus returns. And the book of Revelation ends with Jesus saying, look, I am coming soon. He says it over and over. It is a personal promise from the risen Christ. He will not break his word. He is coming. And I get it. I get that as days go by and as years go by, we begin to think, well, yeah. Is he really coming? Is he really coming? And some people perhaps begin to scoff and say, well, where is this coming that you've promised? But yes, he's coming. And one day, one day the heavens will open, the trumpet will sound, and Christ will descend. Can you imagine that day? You won't miss it. Can you imagine what it will be like? Do you know, when I was about 14 years old, I think it was about 14, I was walking home one night and it was the weirdest, weirdest sky I've ever seen in my life. It was like weird. And there was lightning, like all over there's lightning, but there was no thunder. It was so strange. And I remember my heart suddenly going, this is it. This could be it. And that feeling of excitement, it wasn't. (laughs) But it will be. There will be a day. There will be a day when suddenly we go, wow, he's coming. Man, I'm excited about that day, aren't you? And we've got to know what's coming. We've got to know that this stuff is certain. There is an end. We've got to know it. The third great thing that happens 
is that Christ's people are raised. So we're still in verse 23. We'll speed up. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Christ the first fruits. Why is he called the first fruits? Well, because he's the first to rise from the dead and he guarantees that all of those who belong to him will also be raised with him. In the same way that when you plant a tomato seed and you watch the tomato plants grow and the first little tomato appears, you go, oh, a tomato. You don't take the tomato and then chuck the plant away. That'd be weird. If you do do that, you're a rubbish gardener. Because there's a load more coming. That's the point of the first one. The first one is the one that tells you more are coming and you don't go, oh look, some bananas are coming. No, you say it's going to be the same because it's tomato. It's going to be the same as that tomato. And so you're excited about that tomato because it means there's more tomatoes coming. Well, can I tell you that if we're excited about Christ rising from the dead, he's the first tomato and there will be more. And we will be raised like him. It's not like Christ was raised and we'll be raised in some other way. No, we'll be raised like him. We're going to see lots more about this next time. Okay, I can't get too excited because next time we're going to say, well, what sort of bodies are we going to have? That's next week, uh, two weeks' time. You don't want to miss that. But Christ's people will be raised. But can I just get you to notice something about what it says? Look again at verse 23. Who will be raised? Those who belong to him. Isn't that beautiful? It's those who belong. It's this personal promise that Christ makes. I am coming for you and you who belong to me will be raised. Please don't think that in some, you know, Christ is this kind of figure up here and he's going to sort of wave his hand and go, rise from the dead. No, he's, this is his church. This is his precious people who belong to him. And they will be raised. You will rise. And if, if you have died before he comes, you will be raised with him. If you are still alive when he comes, you will be caught up with him. You will rise. So good. Fourth great thing that's going to happen is that Christ reigns. So verse 24 gives us a little summary. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power. So those are the last two stages. So let's look at that Christ reign spelt out in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Every single enemy is going to be rounded up and brought under the feet of Christ. When all who've opposed him, all who've stood against him, all who've tried to destroy him will be brought under Christ. Under his feet. Where they can do no more harm. And the last enemy is death. Death is going to be destroyed at this point in history. Death is the great enemy. Death is the enemy that none of us can escape. Death is the enemy that screws up life and spoils this world. It spoils our world. And Christ is going to destroy it. Christ is going to take hold of death. 
and he is going to kill it. The death of death. When death dies. When death is thrown into a place where it can do no more harm anymore. Don't you long for a day when death... Can you imagine a world where there was no death? Just extraordinary. Death will be removed. And then the final step is that Christ takes his place. Did we get this weird verse 27? Isn't this slightly, slightly weird? Where suddenly he goes, that he's put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear that this doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. What's that about? Well, this is Paul who wrote this, being extremely careful to make sure that we clearly understand. That's a quote from Psalm 8, verse 27. He's put everything under his feet. That's a psalm about humanity, okay? The place of humanity. Just focus on this for a second. This is slightly hard work, but focus because this, is, this will help you to get something clear. God's purpose for humanity was always that humanity would rule over his creation. God put everything under humanity's feet. So what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. The, fish of the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The beasts of the field, everything under the rule of man, humanity. That's how God designed it. Everything in its place. God as king, humanity as the ruler over creation. Everything in its right place. Such beauty. That got screwed up when humanity went it alone, said, no, we'll go alone, we'll do it on our own, thanks. And so death came into the world. So what did God do? He sent another Adam. He sent another son of man, crowned with glory and honor, and placed everything under his feet. This is why it's so important that Jesus was a man, because God's plan was that humanity would rule. And God is not finished with humanity. God doesn't go, well, humans, you suck. You screwed everything else. Tell you what, let's have God do it instead. No, God's plan is still that humanity rules. And so what God does is he says to his son, his perfect eternal son, he said, the son becomes a man so that through the man, Christ Jesus, God can rule. This is getting a little complicated, I know. And if you don't pick up all this, don't worry about it. I'm just trying to explain why it says what it says here. And then what Christ the man does is he then hands the kingdom over to his father. And so God the Father places everything under Christ's feet. Christ the perfect man, the God man who rules all things. And then Christ when he has brought all enemies under subjection, and this is the bit I want you to pick up, if you've fallen asleep for any of this, get this. The final event in world history, the great climax, is the moment when 
Christ, Jesus, the King, the man who is God, takes the kingdom, he turns to his Father, and he gives it to his Father. And he says, Father, this is for you. This is yours. What a king. What a king that he does not seek to hold on to power and authority, but he willingly and joyfully gives it to the Father who rightly deserves it. And so now you have the picture, this beautiful picture of God, the Father and the Son, the Father who loves to give the kingdom to the Son, and the Son who loves to give the kingdom to His Father. Do you not see the beauty here? This is God, and the end result is that God is all in all. God is everything. I think this is exactly the same as what the prophet Habakkuk saw. Um, we did Habakkuk a year or so ago by saying I, we did it. I mean, we read it, <laughs> studied it. And Habakkuk is given a prophecy that speaks of the end. That's what it says in Habakkuk 2. And the end in Habakkuk 2 is the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Hear that again. When the earth will be filled, the earth, this earth, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. When God is all in all, when he is everything, when his glory fills everything, just as his glory came and filled the temple, now suddenly his glory comes and fills the whole of creation, which has always been his temple. And now God is all in all, and everyone falls down to worship him and to love him. Suddenly, everyone says... This is what I was made for. This is it. This is eschatology, right? This is the stages. Christ has been raised. Christ will return and the dead will rise. Those who belong to him will rise. He will defeat his enemies and then the kingdom will be handed over to his father and there will be this beautiful, beautiful new creation with everything in its right place. And you will be there if you belong to Christ. Do you know where you're going? Do you know the end? Look, if I say to you, uh, get in my car, you're going to ask me a question, aren't you? You're going to ask me why, where are we going? It's a critical question. If you don't ask that question, you're weird. That's a weird thing. You should ask that question if I tell you to get in my car. Why? Where are we going? Do you know, see, that's the point here. Paul wants you to know where we're going. He wants you to know where it's all heading. There is lots and lots of stuff about the future we don't know. And people have all sorts of arguments about it. And they get all het up about it. And they get all confused about it. And people go, I don't know, I don't know. We do know this. This isn't hard. Is it? I know it's hard to believe. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it. But it's not hard to understand. And so there's some implications. Let me quickly do these as we finish. This will change everything. It will change the way you behave. It means death is not the end. Verse 29, about being baptized for the dead. That's hard. Don't know what that means. 
There are at least 40 different suggestions. I'll run through them uh, for you now. <laughs> Not really. Um, there's a load of different suggestions. People aren't sure. It, uh, it probably is something to do with people who were Christians who've died without being baptised and so people were being baptised for them in some kind of way to try and get assurance. Paul's not saying it's a good thing to do. He's just saying, look, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you doing that? That's all he's doing. He's saying your very behaviour shows you that death is not the end. And you can do this with, your, with, with the, our culture. <laughs> the very way we behave shows that death is not the end. The way we talk about things after, the, the way we talk about, oh, you know, I hope I'll be able to see you again one day. Well, why are you saying that if you don't believe in resurrection? It shows us that death is not the end. It also shows us that danger is not pointless. That Paul says, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. <laughs> I fight wild beasts in Ephesus. I don't think he literally means he's fighting lions. I think he's fighting the more dangerous opponents of Christ who want to destroy him. Paul does end up, almost certainly end up being killed because of Jesus. And Paul says, but that's okay because we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I know that the future is to come. I can cope with danger. I can cope with suffering. I can cope with struggle because I know that this is not the end. And it also means that we'll be serious about sin. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Look, this is all we got. Let's just have a happy time. Do the best we can. Don't suffer. It'd be pointless. Just eat, drink, have a happy time. If there is no end, it's just so depressing. You see, here's the trouble. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. We're so easily led away from Christ. We're so easily led into stuff that's about now. We're so easily, we have our eyes taken off the future. When was the last time you watched a TV program, a box set, that was about the return of Christ? And if you did, it was probably dodgy. So the, <laughs> we fill our minds with stuff about now. We fill our minds with the stuff of now. We never talk about them. We never talk about where we're going. We never talk about the return of Christ. We never say, hey, wouldn't it be amazing when Jesus comes? I think when Jesus comes, I think we're going to be blown away. I think we're going to sort of think, why don't we do, why don't we talk about this more? So come back to your senses. Stop sinning. Perhaps for some of you here this afternoon, that is a very specific word stop sinning there is something you're doing in your life right now and the return of christ means you must stop and perhaps you've tried to stop but you can't well then ask for help we've got to help each other to stop sinning because christ is coming and on the day when christ comes the thought that some of us might not belong to him is a horrible thought Well, we're going to pray, and um, we're going to thank God um, for the fact that Christ is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that history is not heading nowhere. We thank you that there is the end.
We thank you that there will be a day when you are all in all. We thank you for the man Christ Jesus. We thank you that there is a man and all things are being put under his feet. Thank you that in Christ humanity reigns and that we share that with him. And Father, we thank you that one day that kingdom will be completed, death will be destroyed, and we will worship. Father, we long for that day. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.